Welcome to the Before You Buy or Sell a Business podcast, where we help buyers and sellers learn more about the acquisition process, discuss recent transactions, and stay up to date on the latest news in the market. Here's your host, Jared Johnson. All right. Today, we've got Ron Quinn from Accelerated Law Group. How are you doing today? Good. Yeah. And you? Doing well. Yeah. yeah. I really appreciate you coming on here. I know you're really busy. Uh, how many transactions are you working on right now? There's probably 60 or 80 of them in here oh my gosh, that we're dealing with yeah, that's, at any given time. That's a lot. So, <laughs> Especially cool. in this type of industry, because yeah. it's not like... Because we deal with more parties. Right. You know, when you deal with brick and mortar houses or commercial property, you got a buyer and a seller, that's it. Here right. we got a buyer, seller, landlord, attorney on one side, attorney on the other side. So it's yeah. just every file takes a little longer. Right. <laughs> well, and then you've got all the real estate stuff too to do. So. When we deal with that aspect of it, yeah. Sometimes. Not every transaction is real estate. Actually, very few. Oh, okay. Most of them are lease premises. Cool. Well, you know, like I said, I mean, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, you know, the the whole idea behind the podcast is to talk about buyers and sellers and kind of give them some advice. You know, what better person to talk to than somebody that deals with buyers and sellers on every single transaction? Every so, single transaction. Yeah. So maybe we could start off. Uh, where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Southern California. I was born in Evansville, Indiana, and then we moved out when I was very young. So I grew up in Southern California and actually graduated from Indio High School out of oh, okay. Palm Springs. Yeah. South of Palm Springs. Cool. Long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we used to play them in basketball. Indio? Yeah. Really? Yeah. We put them in Palm Springs the, High School. In, it was the Rajas, if I yeah, recall. Yeah, and there was I like was... Borrego Springs, I think we played too out there. Which is just out of there too. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's yeah. Funny. So, How funny. Yeah. That's graduated from there and then moved to Los Angeles and right after that. And then where'd you go to school for college? Uh, I didn't. I, I did a couple courses in contracts okay. uh, at the community college, but I never really went to college. I've, all my experience has been from I've been self-employed in, in business since I was 17 years old. Well, it's probably the better way to learn anyways, right? I, real world. I mean, t- it, yeah, I would say absolutely, because a lot of stuff you can't learn in a textbook. You have to learn it from experience. And absolutely. over the years, I've done that. Yeah. Okay. So... Did some courses in college or in LA. How did you get into the crazy world of business transactions? Business transactions. It's actually kind of interesting because I had moved here to Las Vegas uh, when my father came over here many years ago. And uh, I just was getting into a franchise business of retail water stores. And when my dad became ill, we decided to sell the company and we were selling franchises in multiple states. So we couldn't find anybody to handle our business transaction in Nevada. Mm. because Nevada doesn't have a bulk sales law and title and escrow companies don't want to touch it because of the fact that it's a very unique animal to handle a business sale. And so I thought, ah, niche business. And so because of my background in business, franchising contracts, leases, licensing, municipalities and everything else, it just kind of fit. Yeah. And so I started it from scratch many years ago, 22 years ago. So you... You basically studied escrow on accident. On accident. <laughs> yeah, yes, you, on you, accident. You developed the experience. Developed the accident. experience from, you know, from dealing with with the stuff that I dealt with anyway in franchising mm. and then bringing that, in, bringing that education with me to this. So how many years ago was that? 22. Wow. Okay. 22 years ago. If you had to guess how many transactions you've done, what do you think? <sighs> Probably thousands you know let's see 
probably about seven to ten thousand transactions. Wow. And well over a billion dollars in actual transact, you know, an actual yeah. dollar volume. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, because it's anything could be anything from a twenty five thousand dollar restaurant to a multi million dollar chain of uh, of uh, pain clinics. Yeah. For example, what's the biggest transaction you've done? 30 something million. Okay. If I recall. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Something like that's that. That's up there. So, <laughs> so 20,000 to 30 something million. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That's, that's and a... everything in between. And the thing is that, that I've learned over the years is it doesn't, the dollar amount doesn't necessarily dictate the transaction or the work in the transaction. Right. You know, quite frankly, some of the lower, tra- lower dollar transactions can be a little more complex than the higher dollar transactions. Yeah. It seems to feel that way. Uh, that, the transactions under, you know, maybe a million five, um, and then even real small, you know, under three fifty, seem to be more challenging. They do. They really are. You know, the the under three hundred thousand or three hundred fifty thousand, even other under a hundred thousand, can be a yeah. little bit more challenging. You know, and often sometimes sellers don't understand the process themselves. I mean, they look at they've bought and sold a house, so they think buying and selling a business is going to be the same way, and it's really a completely different animal. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Um, So what all services does the firm provide then? We do. Well, we're a law firm here. And so other than, you know, doing legal representation, we act as a a disinterested third-party transaction specialist for business transactions, be it a stock sale, asset sale, membership interest sale, SBA refinancing or what have you. And so we can work with the lenders as well as work with the buyer and the seller and then the business brokers and the small mom and pop private party transactions. Yeah. And then you've been, you know, more recently doing a lot more stuff, even just outside of Nevada, right? We're starting to get more outside of Nevada as we can as a collection and disbursement agent, because I've been doing this so long that I have actually people reaching out from other states. They're like, hey, how do you do it? You know, what do you do? What can you do to assist us? We can't find anybody that knows what you know in doing what you do. So what can you do to help us? Yeah, I tell people all the time when they'd say, "Ah, well, I'm doing a stock purchase. Okay, well, who's handling that? Oh, I don't know. I need somebody? Like, wait, what? (laughs) So, like, yeah, hold on. Here, call this guy That's true. I mean, they often do. They they don't realize it. I mean, because... And it's very interesting because I found this out years ago, and it, and it actually surprises me tremendously. Someone would not buy a piece of land out in the middle of the desert for $5,000 without going through a title company to make sure that the deed was recorded. But I've had buyers and sellers that have not even used escrow that have gone in and handed cash in the hundreds of thousands of dollars to take over a business without going through escrow, without checking anything out, without having a valid contract, just because the seller could hand them a key to the front door and they saw inventory on the shelves. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Not realizing the potential liability that they that they could incur, right? Oh, that's and yeah. it's happened many a time. That's crazy. Many a time. There's just something about it. They just don't look at it the same way. I won't say all people, but many people just don't look at it the same way. Yeah. So it kind of leads into my first question. Then you know, so what what do you think some of the most important things that a buyer and seller should look for when they're choosing an escrow company? Somebody that understands business transactions. I mean, because even when years ago, people said, well, why don't you do real property? And I'm like, but I I have, you know, I I stay on a particular track. Right. And so for me to have to shift from business transactions, which have so many moving parts, to a real property transaction, which frequently has less moving parts, then I'm Mm -hmm. going back and forth. I'd rather just 
focus on one specialty. And so just doing that. So if someone's looking for somebody to handle a business transaction, make sure they know business. You know, I've even said that about some of the most successful business brokers out there have been in business, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, So as long as there's some business acumen. Yeah. Makes sense. So it helps. Yeah. We, we, uh, it's just odd to see, um, you know, it kind of goes along the same lines of when somebody's looking for an attorney, they don't look for a specific attorney that covers, you know, that exact thing they're doing, like contract review or business law. They just say, oh, my buddy's an attorney and I'll just go grab him. It's Boy, like you just hit the nail Escrow. on the head. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head. I cannot tell you how many contracts I've had come in here to buy a business that were written by attorneys that specialize in family law. <laughs> Yeah, it happens for sure. So you're right about that. If you're doing a transaction, I mean, let's face it. If someone's buying a business or selling a business, when they're buying a business, that's probably the biggest investment they're ever going to make in their life aside from their house. But even more important, it's going to give them the income to stay in their house. Right. So you want to make sure that everything you do is accurate and that you're not taking on any excess baggage that you don't need right. or that you don't want. And so it's important that they have, you know, that they understand the specifics of the purchase agreement or have an attorney review it with them if they so choose or find somebody that's, you know, that's in the industry that can assist them in a consulting basis. Yeah, makes sense. So maybe kind of walk me through a normal asset purchase uh, as far as like what you do as an escrow service, um, you know, from when the time that it comes in to kind of you know, the whole way through, if you can. Well, I'm so sure we could talk for six to, hours. For about at that, least. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for a typical asset sale, average, we'll say just an average, you know, non-complex all cash asset transaction, uh, the buyer and the seller will enter into a purchase agreement. Often that'll be through a business broker or they may have created one themselves and they may have an attorney create it. I've had purchase agreements that are two pages long. Hell, I had a purchase agreement that was on a napkin because the guy was at a bar and decided he was going to sell the business and wrote it out on a napkin, you know, and we cleaned that up afterwards. So, you know, I've had contracts, you know, small and I've had contracts that are large. So once we get a contract and the earnest money deposit, then we typically wait for the buyer to go through their due diligence make sure that, you know, that they want to move forward on the transaction. And typically due diligence can be seven days up to 45 or 90 days, depending upon the size of the transaction. Once due diligence is complete, then we start doing what we do, which is we're part private investigator, part researcher, you know, part document prep, you know, to make sure, unlike real property, where you can go to a recorder's office and see what's against that property. It's a little more difficult with the business because you're dealing with leasehold premises 90%, 95% of the time. And when you're dealing with leasehold premises, there isn't going to be a lien on the lease or on the property. There can be a UCC lien if they have any financing done. Mm-hmm. But if they owe small mom and pop vendors around town, that's not going to come up. Right. So, you know, we want, we need to do our best in diligence to make sure business licenses are current, they're registered with the Secretary of State if they're an entity and it's current, you know, clearance from the various municipalities, taxation, Department of Employment, judgment, lien searches, all that stuff. And then prepare the documentation as we get closer to the closing. Once they get their lease assignment approved and any loan, if there's a loan involved. So when a purchase agreement comes in, such as one on a napkin, um, are you... (laughs) 
essentially rewriting the purchase agreement for them at all? Like, do you no. handle any of that? No. I mean, okay. other than on the napkin where I told him to get something actually in writing, uh, we don't want to rewrite the agreement that's already been established between buyer and seller. That's not our job. We're a okay. disinterested third party. We will incorporate that agreement in our specific instructions for the services that we provide, such as you know clearance from Department of Taxation, Department of Employment, UCC, and so on. But we're not going to rewrite the contract. They've already come to terms on the contract. We don't want to change that. Okay. We're not even going to go down that road. We incorporate the contract within our documentation. If somebody came to you and they just said, hey, we have a verbal agreement... Um, we want to, you know, enlist your services to get this completed. At that point, could you put together, you know, basically all the documents they would need, including the purchase agreement? We have an, uh, basically fill in the blank outline purchase agreement that okay. we can provide people if they don't have anything that covers all the basic information for a purchase and sale of a business, you know, contingencies for whether there's inventory included, promissory notes or seller carry, lease assignments, specialized licensing, you know, and all the various the covenant not to compete, trade name, and so on. These things that are in that are typically in a business purchase agreement. Because when someone's buying a business, there's certain things that they're buying. They're buying the experience of the seller. They're buying what they see, but they're also buying that they want to make sure the seller doesn't open up a store up the street. Right. So I mean, there's certain things that you know are already that are, that are pretty standard or should be standard in a purchase and sale agreement. And then you're also kind of helping with the due diligence on that as well. Um, so when you're looking at the purchase agreements, do you ever find things that you're kind of scratching your head, like what is this? And then do you yes. do you bring it to their attention so that if it's something that, that if if I'm having difficulty in figuring out how they want to get to the finish line based on the verbiage that's in the agreement, then we're going to reach out and say, okay, we need to clarify some of this stuff. What okay. what are you really saying here or trying to say here? But it's probably difficult to to not tell the buyer or the seller like, hey, you're you're putting yourself in a bad spot here. I can't um, do that because right. I don't represent either side. Yeah. Uh, and, and no escrow or, or disinterested third party should. All I can do is, you know, say that, you know, because we want to make sure that the ultimately the buyer wants to buy, the seller wants to sell. We just want to make sure that everything within the contract is adhered to. But if there's some stuff that's obscure that makes our job a little more difficult, we're going to ask for clarification. Okay, good. Yeah, I think that's good for people to understand that you're almost like digging for all the facts and then just presenting them and then making sure everything's a clean transaction rather than advising and, um, you know, kind of doing their due diligence for them. Correct. To, to, yeah. The due yeah. diligence part we, we won't be doing when it comes to books and records and stuff like right. that, but we will be researching, as I said, you know, make sure the business license, make sure the business license is in the name of the person that's on the contract. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many contracts come in here where Bob Smith is the seller but Bob Smith doesn't own the business. Smith Enterprises owns Inc. owns the business, and right. that should be the seller. So, or I will have Smith Enterprises Inc. as the seller, and I'll go to the business license, and it'll say Bob Smith. <laughs> so, I mean, frequently people, you know, so it's just a, it, that, that's part of the private investigator part to make sure that everything aligns the way it's supposed to. Yeah. Okay. And I think one of the the things we kind of touched on a little bit, um, several states such as California still have bulk sale um, laws. Could you kind of explain that? Yeah. California does have a bulk sales law. Uh, it's a law on the books whereby you need to publish in the newspaper. I believe it's four weeks, if I recall. It used to be, I don't know if it is anymore, sending out a notice to creditors. I don't think they do that anymore. 
there's transfer tax liability uh, in California, whereby if you're buying a business in San Bernardino County versus maybe buying a business, you know, up in Sacramento County, the tax rate could be different because you would be paying tax on the personal property that's being transferred based on its value. We don't have that in Nevada. Uh, there are some other states that have some type of transfer. I'll call it a transfer tax uh, for the value of the equipment. I've had transactions where we did multiple franchises where some were in Nevada and some were in California. Ooh. And so it was a singular transaction, but with two states. And so we would work with a company out in California to handle the bulk sale publishing and everything else. And then they had to figure out, because in this particular instance, we had, I think it was like six stores in five different counties oh my to gosh. figure out. And then they had to allocate how much each store's actual equipment was going to be valued at and then what the tax rate was going to be. In Nevada, the bulk sales law was repealed in 1991. Okay. So we don't have a bulk sales law, but there are certain successor liability issues by virtue of Nevada revised statutes, such as the Department of Taxation, such as the Department of Employment, personal property, uh, personal property taxes, and so on. Do you also, is that part of what your services are, that you'll kind of look into what their tax liability is going to be? Or? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, in the state of Nevada, uh, because the bulk sales law was repealed and they changed it on the book, so in the state of Nevada, the buyer can be held accountable for up to the purchase price paid for the assets of the business. Wow for any money that could be owed the Department of Taxation. Now, the Department of Taxation is not just sales tax. It's collecting, it's collecting sales tax, but it's also used tax, modified business tax on payroll, and commerce tax. So even if they don't collect sales tax, there still could be a liability. I've had transactions, in all honesty, where people have sold their business, and they actually owed 85% of the purchase price to the Department of Taxation because they hadn't been filing returns and they were audited, or they had been filing returns and just never paid them. Wow. <laughs> that could have been a buyer's responsibility had it not gone through escrow and had they not checked out to see what the potential liability could be. Because once again, the Department of Taxation doesn't care what your agreement is with the seller regarding any reps and warranties of taxation. They're going to look at the statute, which says buyer can be held accountable for up to the purchase price paid. You paid a hundred thousand dollars for this business. You gave him a hundred thousand. He owes us 80. You owe us 80. That's, Simple as that. Yeah. So did, was the seller aware that they had some tax liability? I mean, you would hope so. <laughs> Sellers aren't always a hundred percent honest. Yeah. <laughs> Do you owe any money to taxation? No, I'm fine. So uh, generally they do. The only time that it can come up where they're a little surprised is if they do an audit. Hmm. Like if they do an audit and it turns out that the seller's either been under-reporting or they weren't reporting properly. Okay. And then that can add dollars to the amount that they may owe, yeah. which ultimately could become the responsibility of the buyer if they didn't have what's called a certificate of amount due. Okay. And then so part of your services is obviously to, at the time of closing, is to take that and, and pay... Correct. Taxation. Yeah. Okay. So we will make a request in Nevada. We'll make a request for the Department of Taxation. Uh, we're handling this transaction for this business. This is the closing date. Would you issue a certificate of amount due? They'll do one of one of three things. They'll either issue a certificate that says, you know, hold X amount of dollars based on outstanding returns, because typically there's at least one or two months returns that are outstanding because we always report a month behind and mm -hmm. as in any state. Or it could be that they're being audited because they've never been audited before. And so that would delay getting a letter from them uh, or the seller owes no money and they'll just send me what's called a zero liability letter. Hmm. 
And then with other states, do you, you check that whatever, you know, applies to that state? We're reaching out to those tax departments as well based on their local laws. You know? Okay. And each state is different. I mean, Nevada has on the books that there's successor liability. I'm not sure that successor liability exists in all the other states. So it's it's a case-by-case basis. Yeah, but either way, it's definitely something that people need to look into as a buyer and a seller. They need to make sure, yeah. Yeah. Because this, the buyer needs to make sure that they're not taking on any potential liability. And that kind of goes back to the relationship between the buyer and the seller, the type of business that it is. Uh, if the buyer's unsure or wants to make sure there's no skeletons in the closet or something that comes up, they may want to consider some kind of a withhold and escrow for a period of time to make sure nothing shows up because then the seller has skin in the game. Right. The seller or a promissory note, the seller has skin in the game, whereby they're either going to only get their monthly payments if what they said was true or they're not going to get paid the balance of the purchase price until they do their training or, you know, prove that everything has been paid and, and, you know, some vendor doesn't show up and say, hey, where's my money? Yeah, so there's definitely a lot to, to consider and think about, which is, again, why it's really good to pick a good escrow company or somebody to or someone the to Yeah, someone yeah. to facilitate the transaction itself. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, you've been doing this a long time. Uh, have you seen the amount of stock purchases go up more recently? Actually, yes. Okay. You know, more so. Business brokers weren't able to sell stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's recently changed under a uh, law was signed by by the president not too long ago. Uh, that being said, many transactions are becoming stock transactions or membership interest transactions. Right. So corporations have stocks and LLCs have a membership interest. So, and that can vary from whether or not. There's potential tax liability to the to the entity if it's if the entity sells the business or uh, if there's uh, capital gains taxes or specifically if there's contracts in place. I mean, frequently you can have an LLC or a corporation that has a co- multiple contracts in the area, mm-hmm. which is the value of the company by right. virtue of those contracts, but those contracts may not be assignable. Correct. So as a result, if you're selling the ownership of the entity, the entity is the one that has the contract with the third party, so it doesn't affect that contract. So what's the kind of major difference then when you're handling a transaction that is either you know membership, interest, or stock purchase? Well, with a stock purchase, we'll be dealing with stock certificates. Mm-hmm. So there should there should be, not always, but there should be stock certificates that are issued to the shareholders. The shareholders are selling off their shares of stock to a buyer, uh, and then they're actually transferring the certificates to escrow. Membership interest is more of an assignment because mm-hmm. rarely do they issue certificates. I mean, some LLCs do, but not too frequently. And then they'll do an amended operating agreement with reference to the new owners. And then you're still doing all the same searches same and search. everything? Actually, probably a little more in depth okay. because when we're dealing with a stock or an LLC, when we're doing an asset sale, we're just we're going to do our searches on the seller, which could be mm-hmm. an entity. If we're doing a stock sale or a membership sale, we're going to do searches and investigations on the entity and the people mm. because they're effectively the sellers. Right. So therefore, we want to make sure there's nothing against the entity, but we also want to make sure that the sellers don't have anything against them, such as any stock pledges or anything that could be out there based on a loan that they may have. Right, because they're essentially selling the stock back to the entity, and then the entity selling the stock to the buyer. Uh, it depends. I mean, effectively, they're selling the stock to the buyer, but the entity is the go-between because the right. entity takes in the old shares and issues the new shares. Right, Okay. 
Makes sense. And it depends. I mean, some do it in the form of a subscription. Most just do it in the form of a sale. What What would you say if somebody was was kind of thinking about doing one or the other? Obviously, if you're in a situation where there's a contract or there's, um, it just makes it easier to operate the business by buying at a stock purchase. I wouldn't do it just because it makes it easier. Okay. Because when you do a stock purchase or a membership purchase, you're taking on everything that, that all the history of that entity known or unknown. And so in those instances, you want to make sure that everything is clear. So unless there's a specific purpose, such as a specialized license, you know, which may take longer, or the case of contracts in place or employment agreements or whatever, which could be in effect, don't just do it because it's easier. Your asset sales are cleaner because you have one entity selling to another entity or one person selling to another person. So anything that that person may owe or that entity may owe to IRS, for example, would not become your responsibility. If you're doing a stock or membership sale, then anything in the past, which may have been misfiled, not saying that it was, could become the buyer's responsibility if IRS decided to say, oh, excuse me, we want to review you know, five years ago's tax return. Yeah, that's uh, that can be a little scary. <laughs> so, so there are very good reasons to do a stock or membership interest purchase, making sure there's proper reps and warranties and protections. Um, but it, it's not just because I don't want to spend the money to set up a new entity. I just want to take over yours. Right. That's not a reason. Yeah, that's not sense. a that's not a practical reason. And then having um, also having you know a law firm as part of the your firm. Um, are they able to handle more uh, of the transactions than because with the stock purchase, they need an attorney? Well, once again, we don't represent either side. So we'll do the paperwork and the transaction. But if they want to, if they seek counsel, then they're going to need to seek their own counsel because okay. we're not, we act as a disinterested third party. You okay. know, we're not a judge. We're not jury. We act as a disinterested third party. Our obligation is to follow the terms of the contract. So if, but if do you they need have an SEC co- license then though, or how do you handle no, the attorneys don't need an SEC license. Cause that's, so that's, yeah. I guess that's what I meant. And, and part, and, and once again, they just changed that law recently because bro- business brokers would need an SEC license. I mean, it used to be that, that only, uh, companies that held SEC license, which handled public companies could mm-hmm. quote unquote, sell, sell stock based on the law from the 1930s. The problem is when the law was written in the 1930s, mom and pop corner stores were not corporations or LLCs. Right. They were all sole proprietors. So you go to like a Merrill Lynch and say, hey, I want to sell my my business for a half a million dollars, but I'm just selling my stock. You need to handle it because you have a Series 7 license. They're going to be like, we have no clue because we don't know how to value. We don't know what to do with this because, you know, we're used to dealing with Public, public stocks, traded, yeah. not private stocks. Right. Okay. So then with the new law, what did they clarify? I think did, I think it's up to $25 million, Okay, if I recall, yeah. that a business broker you know, can handle transactions. I want to say it's up to $25 million. And then still obviously use a third party. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Still use a third party. But I mean, but they're allowed you don't to have to have, exactly, it, yeah. you don't have to have a specialized license. Although Nevada also has business brokers that have to have a business broker license. It's right. the only state in the country that I'm aware of that does mm-hmm. that. I mean, you know the guy on the corner could sell businesses in some of these other states and not have to hold any license. It doesn't yeah. mean they're good at it. It doesn't mean you should use them, but because they think they can do it, they do. 
Yeah, yeah, because a lot of states it's like a real estate license, which seems a little silly also. Um, and That's then, how it used to be here. Yeah, so it used to be here that if you ahead. had a real estate license, you could sell a business. And I can't tell you in the beginning how many contracts I would get on a business sale that was on a residential <laughs> real estate contract, which made no sense. But um, this, the situa situation at hand is that people that are going to, if you're going to have somebody represent you in selling a business, be it a business broker or a consultant, make sure they understand the industry. Yeah. You know, it goes back to what I've said for years. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Exactly. So, you know, you've seen a ton of transactions. I'm sure you review a lot of purchase agreements. What are some of the basic things in a purchase agreement that you would suggest that a buyer and seller make sure are included? Well, obviously the business, the dress, you know, the name, what they're buying, list of equipment, fixtures, furniture, and equipment, what's included, what's not, what may be personal property of the seller, uh, trade name, is the trade name included? It may be part of the value of the business. Uh, in today's world, any social media, assignment of the trade name, social media, email accounts, passwords to websites or what have you. Um, Making sure there's, depending upon the circumstances, a covenant not to compete, mm -hmm. you know, unless the seller has other locations that the buyer is aware of. Um, making sure that, you know, it's contingent upon an making sure there's certain contingencies in there that the buyer is aware of uh, and the seller as well, such as lease assignment. You know, the buyer needs to be approved to use the premises. If they do, they can't take over the premises. They won't have rights to premises without a lease assignment and get a proper license. Uh, any seller carry or financing information in there, whether the seller is going to carry, what the interest rate is going to be, how long, what collateral they're going to take, and so on. Um, if it's subject to an SBA loan or subject to any other third-party financing, uh, an allocation to the purchase price, the sooner this is done, the better. Uh, because it makes the transaction go smoother when it comes time for each party to file their Form 8594 with the IRS. Um and then, you know, training, you know, is the buyer buying a business that they already know or that they don't know? Mm -hmm. So if, they, if they're buying a business that they don't know, obviously training is of value to them. So they want to make sure that there's a training provision in there. And even if they're buying a business that they do know, they still want to be trained in that particular business with those particular people. Uh, so those are things that I would find that were key. So just a couple things. I'm saying just a couple things. <laughs> just yeah, a couple a, things. That was a mouthful. Yeah, there. It, it's just it's interesting to think about people doing things on a napkin, and then some, you know, hundred page contracts. So the attorneys are the, getting crazy. The hundred page. Con I think the biggest yeah. one I got was like a hundred and eighty page contract, if I recall. Yeah, some for a and it a wasn't even that big that. of a transaction, and that's what blows me away. Sometimes the larger transactions don't have the big contracts, and some of sometimes the they do, but the majority of it's it, it just surprises me. Yeah. Know? So, and I've also found that sometimes too much verbiage becomes up to interpretation. Yeah. So sometimes the simplest sentence, the simplest language, if you're standing before a judge, is very clear. If there's ambiguity or if there's too much language, then it leaves the opportunity for interpretation, mm. which can make it even more complex. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, if, if you were going to give a, a buyer some advice on what they should do as, in regards to due diligence, what would you suggest? Obviously, they're going to want, and it varies from transaction to transaction. I mean, there are some people that their due diligence is sitting in the store and watching the people come in the front door for three days or five days. 
but basically they're going to want to, you know, perhaps look at cash register receipts, you know, profit and loss statements, uh, tax returns, sales tax returns. You know, if it's a franchise royalty reports, what are be, what's being reported? I mean, what the seller may be saying they're doing in volume and what the actual documentation could be two different things. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, review the lease, see what you're assuming. Because you're as part of the part of the transaction may be your obligation to assume that lease. So make sure you know what it is you're assuming. Mm -hmm. uh, frequently, I will have transactions where they'll just do a lease assignment, but they never read the lease. And I'm like, did you read the lease? And they're like, you know, should I? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I would recommend that you see what it is you're assuming. <laughs> yeah. You know, or any other contract for that matter that you may be assuming. Um, so, I mean, those things I think would be key. Okay. And then um, in regards to having a seller carry note, what are some of the kind of basic things that you typically will look for if you're reviewing something to make sure it's... So I look at seller financing, that, 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 and this is just my own interpretation of this, that if, if John Q. Public seller is going to finance part of the sale of this business, they should be treated no different than any lender would be treated. So they should be able to have a promissory note, a security agreement, perhaps a personal guarantee, and then depending upon the size of the transaction, maybe a lien on someone's house, just much like many lenders will do. And so, you know, we want to make sure for, if that's in the contract, I'm not going to say do it if it's not in the contract. So we're going to go back by the contract. But most contracts will have a promissory note, personal guarantee and security agreement. But we basically, what's the term of the loan? What's the interest rate of the loan? What are the, what's the payment structure going to be? Is it amortized over 30 years, due in 10? I mean, what's the setup of that? And, you know, what's the basis for it so we can draft the note accordingly? Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, that kind of goes both sides. Buyer and seller both want to look at the note, make sure it's yeah, you know, it Yeah, they're pretty standardized. I mean, that's yeah. like when you go buy a house and you do a seller carryback, the title company has a standard promissory note, or you go to a legal stationery store and they'll have a standard promissory note. Yeah, and even those can be tons of pages long. Or sometimes I've seen them just be I've seen a them a single sentences. page or a, yeah. or a half a page. Yeah, and then I've seen them several pages. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Think of the the difference of between all of them. So, all right, so you know that was a lot to unpack. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you've got. Uh, some interesting stories maybe you could tell us um you, you know, mean like what's like what's like the craziest thing that's happened to you in the transaction <clears throat> let me think the craziest transaction or craziest thing well vada once again because it's nevada i've done brothels i've done strip clubs i've done dispensaries and stuff like that and those typically aren't all that crazy i'd have to say that some of the crazier transactions uh, I won't even say crazy, but some of the more difficult transactions have been sometimes where before the closing, the buyer and the seller aren't necessarily getting along. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that happens. You yeah. know, the seller still wants to sell, the buyer still wants to buy, but they don't want to be in the room at the same time. Mm. And yeah. that can happen periodically. What I've always said to people, because when they first did the business broker law in Nevada, and I would go speak at some of the classes, is that when you're selling a house, your real estate agent's going to tell you, this is a business transaction. They're going to come in. They're not going to like your wallpaper or your paint color or your flooring or how you laid it out. You can't take it personally. But I find in a business transaction, it's highly personal to the seller. 
because that's their blood, sweat, and tears for many, many years. So sometimes tempers or personalities can get heated depending upon the circumstances of the situation or if things are taking too long. Yeah, that's some great insight. I, I think that's one of the, the harder um, things that people have to deal with on both sides, whether it's the broker, escrow, seller, lender. Everybody's kind of got a little bit of this like emotional roller coaster. You know, you and I have done so many transactions over the years that to us we're just like, yeah, it's fine. It's just another transaction. We, you get a little numb to it. And you, you kind of forget the personalization of it that the seller is uh, essentially sending their kid off to college. And or that's true. This is something they've, built, yeah, you know, they've yeah. built this for years. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, and they've had an exit strategy. You know, they've, they've, they've ran this business for 10, 15, 20 years and they've decided that they're going to retire or what have you. I mean, and at the same time, they also, many of them are not like, I'm not selling it just because I'm selling it. Right. I'm selling it because I want to see it continue. Right to grow. Yeah. And so, and they take it very personal, uh, and they take the whole transaction itself very personal. And I've said that for years that, you know, it's a, it's a highly, it's a highly personal transaction for both buyer and seller, but especially seller. And it can be, you know, a lot of twists and turns. It's a very fluid transaction from start to finish because mm-hmm. so many things can, can come up. Yeah. Well, and, I, and what I've kind of noticed over the years is that the emotional roller coaster never seems to be on the same the same track. You know, you'll have, uh, you know, both parties are happy and upset at different times. And so you're trying to manage all those emotions. Which and, can be challenging. Yeah. There's, and the thing is that they look at us as to be the fixer. Yeah. <laughs> frequently yeah you know they look at the broker like well the broker's getting paid so he has an interest in this because he wants to make sure that the deal gets done i mean obviously we get paid for our services but not like what brokers get paid but you know the bottom line is that we're just as a disinterested third party we just try to bring them back to reality in Mm -hmm. some instances as opposed to when they get a little off track to where we can make sure that the train is on the same track for both people yeah uh and sometimes that can have a little bit of a challenge to it and sometimes in all honesty it's just a matter of something as simple as communication yeah absolutely well that's any relationship yeah (laughs) (laughs) just plain old communication yeah yeah Yeah, it's pretty Uh, interesting to make sure that they know what's going on or or feel or feel a part of it too you know Mm -hmm. sometimes there'll be transactions where, you know, they won't hear anything from anybody, you know, even from us, because we're just waiting for them to do something. And they're like, okay, what's going on? What's going on? And like, well, I thought you were doing it. I thought you were doing it. It's like, well, we can't do anything until you get your lease assignment, you get your loan approved, you get your, you know, you, you, you decide you're moving forward, you sign off on due diligence or what have you. Yeah, they're just not talking to each other. <laughs> and then they end and up sometimes frustrated. that's true. Yeah. yeah, sometimes that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So we've we've heard stories over the years of people walking into escrow with a duffel bag of cash. Have you had that happen to you at all? A few times, wow. which we won't take. Oh yeah, of yeah, course. which we won't yeah. take. Uh, a lot of uh, there are various people that deal in cash, mm-hmm. and they feel that if they deal in cash, it's they're going to get a better deal or a transaction. But we can't take that, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that is that part is true. So we say, okay, we'll take that and go to the bank and put it in there. That becomes problematic, however, if they're getting a loan. Right. Because if they're getting like an SBA loan or a commercial loan, that lender needs to make sure that whatever funds they're using for cash injection is verifiable. Right. And if suddenly, you know, $50,000 showed up in the bank account a month ago and it's not attached to anything, then it creates an issue or a problem. 
Well, that and then they likely will get flagged by the bank. Uh, Anything um, over ten thousand, of course. Yeah. yeah Anything so, over ten thousand. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty crazy mm-hmm. when you have people. So no, we. It's you know in today's world, it's basically wire transfers, and and we'll take cashier's checks, you know, because we can verify them anyway. Yeah. Most title companies won't anymore. They want everything in a wire. But you know that being said, you know wires, you need to be very careful. Make sure you know who you're wiring it to. Verify it with the escrow or whoever third party you're doing it with. You know, and then it also, that makes me think of something else too. When buyers are dealing with sellers, you wouldn't go buy a house and give the seller a deposit to buy the house. Right. That deposit would go into escrow. But frequently I have seen where buyers will give a deposit directly to the seller. Yeah. They won't move forward on the transaction and then they're having a difficult time getting their money back. Yeah. So, you know, make sure that you know whatever earnest money deposit you have is protected for you. Yeah, that makes sense. It's pretty crazy the <laughs> the way people just kind of just oh sure, I'll take here, here's yeah. a check. You know, yeah. you know, no problem. You know, I'm gonna get all this inventory. Yeah, okay, here's a check. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So well, this has been great. There's a lot of information. I'm sure each little topic we could talk for hours and hours and I'm sure we'll Absolutely. have some other Absolutely. stuff come up and we'll get you on here again. So, Oh, for sure. I always ask two questions at the end. So the first one is, do you have a mentor or if you, have you ever had a mentor? Uh, probably my father, because my father was always in business when I was growing up and I used to go on calls with him and sales when I was a very young person. Cool. So probably very much my father. Well, good. You That's know, great. And he and I were in business for many, many years together. So probably my dad. Yeah. It's yeah. great. All right. So you're great at this. I I would easily say I'm you're okay probably this, no, no, no. <laughs> I would say you're probably the best escrow, you know, company in the in the country. What what motivates you? I mean, I know you've had even some health issues in the past. <clears throat> you've had things. I mean, I, let's let's be a hundred percent transparent here. <laughs> you have called me several times from a hospital bed, trying to close that the is transaction. True. That is true. So, On my phone, working with statements and documents and everything else. That yeah, part is true. He called yeah. me and said, "I can't see right now. <laughs> However, someone's reading me this, and we need to get this closed." I'm like, "What are you doing? No, go relax." So, so what? motivates you to, to I love work the, at that level. The thing that I love, well, first, I'm very committed to what I do, and, and I believe I have a duty to the people that I'm working with, you know, to handle their transaction. You know, any health issues that I have or any delays that I have, they still have a timeline they want to try to stick with. And of course, things can come up which can delay that anyway. I mean, I'm only human. That being said, what I love about this industry and what I'm doing is the variety of it. Mm because we're dealing with so many different types of businesses in any given time uh, and the challenges to it. Every transaction is different. I have to be a problem solver. I have to be a psychiatrist. I have to be an investigator. I have to be a, a reader. I have to be a drafter. You know, and These are all components to it that, that excite me because it's that variety that drives me to work every day or to work from a hospital bed you know, <laughs> to make sure that the thing gets done the way it's supposed to get done. Yeah. And that's probably part of my problem is because I'm type A. It has to be T's crossed, I's dotted, done right. Yeah. And you don't want someone else to <laughs> pick it up and work on it. So <laughs> well we so we all appreciate how hard you work. But, so. Well, thank you so much. I enjoy it. And you know, I see so many different types of businesses and I've seen businesses that have been bought and sold and then they're back in here six months later because the buyer's failing or whatever mm. the case may be. 
one of the probably the best things I could tell a buyer, depending upon the type of business that they're getting into, because I have seen this happen many times, is when you're taking over a business that's working. Obviously, if you got an SBA loan or if your accountant or attorney went through the due diligence and said, yes, this is a good business for you, you're going to get a good return on investments, you're going to be able to grow this business, don't change everything the minute you walk in the door. Right. Don't change anything the minute you walk in the door. When I was in franchising as a franchisor many years ago, I remember attending an IFA convention, and I sat down with the general counsel of IHOP. And had a conversation with him. And I said to him, I said, how do you get people to follow what they're supposed to follow as a franchise? And he's like, well, that's a good question. Because I said, it's typically a problem in the industry. You know, people buy a franchise and they think, what's well, my franchise? It may be your name, but it's my franchise, so I'm going to do what I want. Well, franchise is a recipe. And if the recipe is, if you change the ingredients, you may not get the same results. So he said, I set him down as general counsel. And I say... Let's make a deal here. You do everything we, you follow our guidelines for six months. And if after six months, your market you feel is a little different, then we'll sit down and we'll reevaluate. And I said to him, I said, so how often do they come back? He says, never. So I will say that to people that are buying a business that, are, that is a strong going business, don't mess with it when you first get in there. Don't come in like, okay, this is my business now. I'm going to go in at 10 and leave at 2, you know, or I'm going to let the sales manager go because that money I can save or what have you. Leave it alone. That's great. Advice. Don't mess with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, we hear that from time, time and time again. Yeah, I, I hear it from so many people. They say, you know, sit there. Obviously, if there's the things that immediately need to get fixed, of course, you know, then yeah, oh, of fix course. It, but don't. Of course. But I mean, I've recipe. had people go in and literally destroy a business within six months. Yeah. You know, wow. uh, because of the fact that they went in with the ideas that they were going to do this, they were going to do that, they were going to do this. If they were getting in a business they didn't know anything about. Mm -hmm. So you pro you probably, you're buying a business because you, you like the industry. You may like the location, you may like the current employees, uh, or any one number of motivations. So it's those employees, it's that location, it's that goodwill, it's that history that's made that business successful. So the minute you start you know, going in and cutting corners, changing things, I'm not saying not do it if it makes practical sense, but, you know, do it baby steps yeah. is probably the best way I would put it, you know, baby steps, mm -hmm. uh, because it just, otherwise it, you know, creates havoc with the existing employees. It creates havoc with the customers, the vendors, and, you know, you're buying, you're buying something that's already successful. So, and you want to make it more successful. So, you know, stand on the shoulders of the people that made it the way it is today. Yeah. And move sense. forward. Yeah, some great advice. So uh, if somebody wants to use you, how can they find you? Uh, they can reach out and call me or send me an email. You know, what, I'm what's happy your to do uh, that. website address? Uh, it's acceleratedescrow.com. Okay. Uh, if they want to email me, it's uh, ron at acceleratedescrow.com. Uh, All right. R-O-N at A-C-C-E-L-E-R-A-T-E-D-E-S-C-R-O-W.com. And I'm always happy to answer questions, you know, or call me on the phone. You know, our, our phone number's on our website, and I'm happy to answer questions. I have people call me all the time to just say, hey, I'm thinking of doing this or doing that. I have attorneys that call me and say, hey, I have a client that's doing this. You know, what do you think? You know, what are your thoughts? Yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, I would go this route, or, you know, maybe you need to do this, or maybe you need to check into that. Well, that's great. Yeah, appreciate it.
So no, I, like I said, I enjoy the challenges of what, just like you. Yeah. It's challenging. What you do is challenging. Yeah. And you do it on a different level than we do. We, we kind of do the same thing in a way. Yeah, absolutely. But somewhat different. There's a lot of overlap. Yeah. <clears throat> but the interesting thing is each one has its own variety and that's what makes this interesting. I mean, if I was doing the same thing every single day, I think I would go crazy. Yeah, I, I talk about that often to people. They, you know, because there's there's kind of two, maybe three different ways that people do SBA lending. You know, you have typical commercial real estate lenders, you have people that do maybe some small stuff or some debt refinance, and you have the business acquisition guys. And you know, maybe 12, 13 years ago, I kind of realized, hey, the business acquisition stuff's kind of fun. Um, and then now I'm like. It's like the hardest lending we can do. And it's, it's like half the time I'm like, well, why do I do this to myself? <laughs> Things have shifted over recent yeah. years. But, you know, and you bring up an interesting point about SBA. Uh, it's an ideal venue for a buyer and a seller because the seller is being taken out and the buyer is getting a good deal on the financing instead of maybe a seller carry back for three or five years. They're getting 10 years. I will say this about SBA loans, too. Most any financial institution can do an SBA loan. Doing an SBA loan and doing an SBA loan well are two completely different things. Absolutely. Because I've had SBA transactions with, you know, lender, with lenders such as you and other similar lenders that go fairly easily. And then I've had SBA lenders that have, that the people have no, I know more than they do. And that's scary. Oh, yeah. I tell people that all the time. And it's just, you know, I think as as we do more and more transactions, the the buyers are starting to realize that more and more. So yeah, and it makes if someone's doing a lot of SBA seven A loans and they understand the process and everything mm -hmm. else, it's just going to make it easier all the way around. But if you have some, you know, if you have an institution that does, you know, one a quarter, yeah. or one a month, or maybe two a month, that's a completely different animal. Yeah. And, and it's going to go through different committees and it, yeah. it just, it, it makes it more, you know, go to the experts, yeah. you know, an SBA lender that does this all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Just I, makes it I tell you all the time, you want, you're buying a building I'm probably not the best person for, I can do it. But... Uh, you do 504s, I'm sure, yeah. 7As for a building, but, you know, but it's the, the biz, on the BizAC side, yeah. because of the fact that it can be a little more complex with dealing with landlords, dealing with leases, landlord consents or, or other things that are going to be involved. Some lenders that can do SBA loans just because they can, uh, it may make it may take longer. It may be more difficult, and it may not be as good of an experience for both the buyer and the seller. Well, it always goes back to kind of the similar, you know, example of the family law attorney writing up the purchase right. agreement. <laughs> and that's <laughs> true. No, and that's true. You yeah. know, you're right about that. that's absolutely true. You're absolutely right about that. You know, yeah. it's very much that way because. And, and, it, and that's why in Nevada, like title companies don't want to do what I do because it's very much a specialty. I don't want to right. do what they do because I think it's boring. But, <laughs> you know, at the same time, you know, it, it goes back to what I said before. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. Exactly. Well, let's <laughs> let's end there. I think that's a great way to end. I really appreciate you coming on here. Anytime. My pleasure. I enjoy it. Like you said, we could talk for hours with experiences and different types of transactions, mm -hmm. but I enjoy it. I love what I do. All right. We'll do a part two soon. <laughs> Thanks. Uh -huh. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this podcast informative and helpful. Please don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. For more information, or if you'd like to discuss a transaction, please go to www.jaredwjohnson.com.